When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Is Wakanda Forever edition. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. On today's show, Black Panther Wakanda Forever continues the story of Black Panther but without the late and very, very great Chadwick Boseman. How does a franchise soldier on without its star? We will discuss. And then the documentary Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me, takes us pretty deep into the life of a young woman breaking under the strains of stardom. Courageously not breaking is maybe the better way to put it, actually. That's what I wish I'd written. Um, It's on Apple TV+. Plus. We will discuss that, too. And finally... Congress has its very first Gen Zer, and young people may well have decided this past election. We discuss a rising political consciousness and just maybe a new swing constituency. To that end, joining me today is uh, what's your generational uh, affiliation right now, Nadira? Have you switched uh, to registration? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm technically a zillennial, yeah. which uh, is something that I think is the only thing that really encompasses how I feel, which is caught in between the sort of millennial oeuvre and the Gen Z energy. Oh, I love it. I'm a cusper, too. I'm exactly between a boomer and a Gen X. So, um, but anyway, of course, you're Nadira Goff, a uh, slate uh, culture writer, and congratulations on the gig and the title. It's richly, richly deserved. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm excited by these topics. And uh, I don't know what you think of Wakanda Forever. And I'm very eager to find out what both of you uh, thought of it. So shall we dig in? Shall we make a show? Let's go. Brilliant. Let's okay. do it. Uh, excellent. Black Panther was a path-breaking success in uh, every respect. But at its heart was... Its heart, the pathos, the humanity, the beautifully modulated charisma of its star, Chadwick Boseman. He died in 2020 from colon cancer. Now comes the sequel, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, a movie whose hero is arguably a society, Wakanda, the Afrofuturist paradise, one substantially governed by women and devoted to preserving its own autonomy and its supply of a rare but strategically valuable substance, mineral, what would you call it? It's almost like a superpower lending. Yeah, it's like an outer space meteor (laughs) element. I don't know. Yeah, that would-be colonial powers would love to get their dirty mitts on. Once again, the film is directed by Ryan Coogler. It stars Letitia Wright, Angela Bassett, and Tinak Huerta as Namor, an undersea leader who may or may not be the movie's supervillain. In this clip, Namor sneaks into Wakanda for the first time, and he's greeted with a, I would not call it a warm welcome, from Ramonda, the queen of Wakanda, played marvelously by Angela Bassett. Let's, uh, let's listen to the clip. Stop! Right there! Who are you? And how did you get in here? This place is amazing. The air is pristine. And the water. My mother told stories about a place like this. 
a protected land with people that never have to leave, that never have to change who they were. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. Oh my, Dana. Um, I announced my curiosity about what you felt about this movie because I'm not sure I know how I felt about this movie. It was such a mixture of admiration, awe, geographical and mythological confusions, and um, I felt as though I was in search of something. And maybe you'll tell me what I missed. Um, what did you think of this film? I mean, let me start with a disclaimer that every time I talk about a Marvel movie or write about a Marvel movie, there's a part of me that feels like this is not my thing to write about and somebody's going to object to what I say, whether they're because I don't know the back mythology enough or because I like the movie too much or not enough. And then when it comes to the Black Panther franchise, it's further complicated by the fact that I'm a white person commenting on this you know, film that is this sort of Afrofuturist fantasy. But given all of those caveats, I liked this film a lot more than I thought I would and had a much more um, emotional and uh, and spiritual, I almost want to say, engagement with it than I expected to. And I think that is in part because of the the absence at its center, you know, yeah. I mean, because Ryan Coogler is is really trying to wrestle, I feel like, on film with the uh, with the real life loss of Chadwick Boseman. So that ends up getting layered into the movie in this in this way that made it unexpectedly moving. And the fact that he doesn't replace the Black Panther, not only does he not recast that part, I mean, that was something that could have been done, but that Coogler said from the beginning he was not going to do. It just simply mm-hmm. put another, you know, man in the place of the Black Panther. Instead, what he does is creates, as you said, this um, this very uh, matrilineal society um, it's it's entirely ruled by women in this in this version, um, and with the absence of the former hero at its center, and that doesn't always rhyme perfectly or make perfect sense with the requisite Marvel movie action scenes. And as I struggle with in my review, I don't think this movie balances those two tones isn't even the word, those two genres completely Mm. successfully. You know, this very interior drama about female mourning and this giant spectacle of, you know, warring mythological peoples. I don't think that those things make total sense together on screen. And as always happens when a a really um, auteur kind of director goes into Marvel land, I feel like Kugler is to some degree constrained by those limitations. But given all of that, I felt real awe in this movie, in many of the underwater scenes, um, in, you know, a, a lot of the the interplay among the remaining grieving survivors in Wakanda. And yeah, if you, if, if this is a world that, that intrigued you the first time and that you cared about, I would say, go back and you will find something there. Mm-hmm. Right. So Nadir, obviously, that there's this heartbreaking absence at the center of this film and the film I agree with Dan. It honors that, right? The loss of mm-hmm. Chadwick Boseman. Surrounding it are a lot of things that were at play in the first one. It's incredible that Marvel, owned by Disney, can make a movie that really legitimately feels like a parable about the global south versus the global north. It's a post-colonial mm-hmm. film. And I, I just don't I don't know that I'm reading that into it, right? No, not at all. I think 
One of the things that I really loved about the first Black Panther was its ability to create a villain that is sympathetic, which Mm. (laughs) I did write about this for Slate. But I do think that Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger was sympathetic, not only because he had some really interesting sort of radical politics, but also because he's very attractive. Hmm. I don't think that that is quite different this time around. And I really enjoy that. I think one of the successes of the Black Panther franchise is bringing these sort of post-colonial tales to this mainstream form and really having the audience grapple with, well, what does it mean to be a villain? What does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to be an anti-hero even? And to really grapple with ourselves as an audience belonging to most often or most likely, especially the people who are writing about them as critics, these nations that have committed these horrific crimes or have a history of colonialization and slavery. And I really love that the film still grapples with those things. I really enjoyed Namor as the villain, as the antihero, I would say. Again, not just because he's attractive, which he is, <laughs> but I do think that ultimately, even the sort of Namor post-colonial story was bogged down by a whole bunch of just really frustrating MCU world building (laughs) that I just didn't see as totally necessary and found as kind of annoying, especially given that the film could have been a really, really tight story, but ended up being almost three hours long, which I just felt was kind of unnecessary. It is exactly that, right, Dan? It's sprawling. Funnily enough, what I found missing in this was as much um, the Killmonger character and Michael B. Jordan's like extraordinary performance as him in the first one, which to me, I thought I was watching in the first one an equally powerful racial parable about different possible ideals of black masculinity as represented by these two astonishing actors. And it brought me over the course of its rather epic sweep to a freaking meaningful Marvel fistfight at the end. As a friend of mine brilliantly said, you know, if the entire existence of the universe is at stake, are fistfights really the way they're going to get, that's going to get settled? You know, it's like these (laughs) huge stakes and then it's two guys beating the crap out of each other and you're like, I don't know. But in that movie, it sort of worked because I felt like the stakes weren't the existence of the universe. It was the existence of this black utopia, right? autonomous black utopia and the nature of it and what counts as black utopia and what counts as black masculinity. Yeah, and there's a meaningful ideological dispute between the fist-fighting guys. Exactly. Right. And I was like, I'm all in, right? So I felt that absence very powerfully. At the same time, there's an ambiguity in its place, which is, is Namor going to... And it's his dilemma, and it's a real dilemma. You're also a quote-unquote racial other that the American empire and other colonial empires wish to exploit and have exploited. And um, what is your relationship to defensive violence going to be? I'm telling you that is in this movie. It saturates it. And I feel like it works as a question and that you're thrusting on a mass global audience. That kind of question to me is worthy of enormous amounts of respect. I don't know how it works as a plot device. And that's where I was saddened. Yeah, I do think it's really, really interesting. And I think that that question is the right one, because something that I always think about, especially when it comes to the Black Panther films and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole, is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, at its heart, 
like Western imperialist military propaganda. And I say this as someone who really, really loves the Marvel Cinematic Universe and doesn't love Western imperialist (laughs) military propaganda. Um, I've watched almost every Marvel entity except for, I think, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which Mm. is quite a lot of time of my life, I do have to say. And so I think them posing these questions in Black Panther, in both of these films, is really, really interesting. But I do think that when it has to play the Marvel game, it ultimately ends up losing, right? It ultimately sort of knocks that question mark off the end of the question and kind of just leaves the sentiment there. And so I would really love for this film in particular, Wakanda Forever, to be able to sort of have the freedom that the first one had to really, really sort of go there. I mean, even though it doesn't necessarily hold up to all of its ideals in the first one. In the first one, by the end, they end up still siding with the countries that they shided throughout the entire film for (laughs) all of the horrible acts that they had done beforehand, which, of course, is the only way I guess it could end. But even though it didn't necessarily circle back on that promise, it still made a much more concerted effort to sort of explore that question than this film did. And this film was just dealing with too much. But I really, really like that it tried. And I love, as both of you were saying earlier, it's sort of transitioned from, I mean, I call the first one Daddy Issues 101. (laughs) Um, It is very much steeped in the issues of fatherhood and what it means to be a man in masculinity, as you were saying. But what I loved and what Dana was saying earlier is that this film really does kind of just put all that aside and focus on the only people who can maybe get us out of this mess of tremendous grief of this sort of question of a post-colonial state and what we're going to do about that and the actual violence, which is women, right? Mm. And I really, really wanted that to go even further than it did. But I love the sort of steps it was taking in that direction. Yeah, I mean, if you think about what this movie could have been, I I feel tremendous relief that I didn't walk out of it thinking, why the first Black Panther tried to do so much and, you know, was so kind of innovative within that genre and was tried to make a political statement that was so much more contemporary. And look at it now, just sunk into this sad fan service, you know, I mean, something really cynical. It did not feel like a cash grab in that way to me at all. That said, and I feel this way about any director of of Ryan Coogler's level of talent, I hope that he gets out of the Marvel Universe Mm -hmm. at some Mm -hmm. point. And when I read that his next project, he doesn't know what his next directing project is so it could be anything but he is you know producing various marvel series he's going to be producing a disney plus series called Ironheart. that's about one of the characters in this movie who is an obvious just plant you know to, to launch yeah. a new franchise um this character who whose superhero um, form is called Ironheart, and that's all great i mean i want ryan kluger to cash some good paychecks so that he can do the things he wants to do but you know this is the man who made Fruitvale Station, who made Creed. I mean, sure. he he has yeah. other things to do with his one wild and precious life than keep on <laughs> doing Marvel brand service. So, I mean, I at once feel hopeful about this movie and cynical about it. And in general, if we were talking about Marvel in a more global way, I would say I wish that it didn't have the chokehold on the culture that it did and with, that we were having these kinds of discussions about other kinds of movies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, with all that being said, there are many parts of this movie that I definitely did enjoy First and foremost being Angela Bassett. I think that her performance as Queen Ramonda is astounding, is staggering, and I expect nothing less of my impeccable armed queen, Angela Bassett. I love her so much. But there's so many other great 
parts of this movie to me. I think Denai Guerrera as a Koye was given so much more to do in this movie. And I really appreciated seeing her sort of get to have this emotional breath that I know that she's capable of. I really enjoyed the sort of um, just offhanded one-liner, absolute hilarious hits from Winston Duke, who played M'Baku. You know, all of his moments where he was just like sarcastically eating a carrot you know all of these things to here me here are what makes... steals every single <laughs> yes. scene he steals every scene and i think those performances are performances that make these movies and performances that maybe only great directors can sort of get out of these marvel movies and out of these sort of machine films again machine films that i love very much and so i you know i don't necessarily want just mediocre directors to direct all these movies. I do think that sometimes they can rise to the occasion, the movies being. And so, you know, it's it's nice to see all these auteur directors at the helm. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of disappointing that they sort of have to grapple with this, the machine and the system of the MCU as a whole. With that, I can completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here, here. All right. Well, I have to say... I think what unites our three topics this week is a degree of optimism we haven't dared allow ourselves for years now for all the obvious reasons but and you have to be you can't be credulous but you're sort of allowed to be a little optimistic and i felt like this was one of them i mean yes there's this gigantic tentacular machine devoted to extracting mammoth amounts maximum amounts of profits for shareholders known as disney and and it's you know flagship treasury of ip marvel at the same time there is a degree of creative and moral autonomy to this series that is maybe their most successful one it's certainly among them and it's just remarkable how many times you discover that there's like a heart and a conscience at the heart of it that i i do think it's bypassed my tendency to cynicism in ways that surprise me so here here i guess that that'll be my bottom line all right the movie is uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. It's uh, only in theaters now, too. It's also nice to know that many people are still willing to go see something. Yeah, it crushed the box office yeah, over the week. Yeah, for sure. All right, check it out, and uh, let's move on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in the program where we discuss business. Dana, what um, what do you have? 
Steve, there is but one item of business, and that is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. This week, we are inspired by a question our producer threw out to us, inspired by Steve's recent endorsement of the novel Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard, which he said he struggled to get into. He was initially annoyed by, he almost put the book down, and then he was sort of, he sort of discovered the code and started to uh, appreciate its use of language and ended up really loving the book. So with that in mind, we thought we would talk about other works of art that we struggled to get into or get through at first, but ultimately ended up enjoying. There are a lot of reasons you might struggle with a book or a movie or a TV show. Maybe it's boring. Maybe it's dense. Maybe it feels too familiar to you. But sometimes it's worth sticking with it and getting over the hump to the point where you enjoy it. Or maybe sometimes it's worth throwing it aside. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing us discuss that aspect of encountering new cultural works at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a Slate Plus member, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus content, like the podcast segment I just described, which lots of other Slate shows have as well. And, of course, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And best of all, you'll be supporting us, our work, and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to Slate. So please, sign up today if you haven't already at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. All right. Well, Selena Gomez has been a star since she danced and sang next to Barney at the age of seven. In the time since, she's been a star of a Disney show, a pop star, a movie star, lately star of a great cooking show on HBO, and a really nicely delivered Hulu mystery holding her own next to comedy greats uh, Martin Short and um, Steve Martin. And yet, Will it shock you? Stardom kind of sucks. Gomez is a real human being. She suffers from lupus, has been diagnosed uh, uh, with bipolar disorder. And as the new Apple TV Plus doc, Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me, shows us, here is a young woman, an intelligent young woman, coming into her own in a straitjacket called Fame. In the clip, you'll hear Selena herself discussing her early career, starting with uh, the Barney gig. I was seven years old when I got my first job. I was proud because I got to go escape my life and be in Barneyland and just play and sing. I don't know, I just fell in love with these escape things. Then I never stopped. I just kept going. And then when I hit around 11 and I moved to Los Angeles, I just wanted to work. I loved my job. But eventually, after doing this for so long, I started to feel vain. It made me feel lonely somehow. And then when I started touring, it just got worse. After I got out of the last treatment center, I knew what made me happy was connection. Mm, all right, Nadira, let me start with you. Something I didn't mention about the doc that I think people should know is its director is... Alex Kashishian, who is best known, I think, still for having directed the Madonna Truth or Dare documentary, which was a not dissimilar project, a look in 91, sort of maybe behind the scenes, maybe candid uh, at a huge pop diva. What did you make of this one? So I've been following Selena as a big fan of hers for her entire career, which is why I feel as though we are friends and which is why I have a sort of parasocial relationship towards her and feel as though I can use just her first name. And I think a part of that is sort of the brand she builds, which as this film shows is, I don't know, some sort of extension of who she 
actually is, right? You know, she has this reputation as the child star who may have suffered some bad things, but is still ultimately a good person. She's mm-hmm. warm. She's open. She's accepting. She does a lot of philanthropy. And even though she's made some slight missteps, you know, she was in that 2019 Woody Allen film with Timothy Chalamet and Al Fanning, A Rainy Day in New York. She produced 13 Reasons Why, which she claims doesn't sort of uh, make suicide into, a, I don't know, a spectacle, but I I not the biggest fan of that show even though she's misstepped a few times she's still known as this like disney good girl or someone who's Mm -hmm. made it out relatively okay but i think this movie is showing that she wasn't relatively okay was she and and not even remotely for most parts of the career that i've been following but i think one of the things that i'm hesitant about with this documentary i mean first of all i'm hesitant about celebrity documentaries as a whole, as a genre, there's a part of them that always feels some layer of fabricated to me as if it's still trying to sell me something. Mm -hmm. And I think that this documentary kind of breaks that down a little bit, but not entirely. And two of the criticisms that I have, I mean, we can get into them. I think there's a lot to talk about here. But one of them is that I think it's entirely too vague. You know, I didn't even realize until reading about all of her mental health struggles after I saw the documentary that her psychosis was way more severe than the documentary sort of lets on or gets into. And also it doesn't showcase any of the things that I love about Selena's career now. I am someone who really, really loves Selena as an actress. I think since her Disney days, she's kind of wound down the acting thing and is getting more into her music, which I'm also a fan of. But from the mid 2010s to now, she's done a lot of astounding things. She was really great in Rudderless with Billy Crudup and uh, the late great Anton Yelkin. She had a short cameo in The Big Short. She was in The Fundamentals of Caring with one of my all-time favorites, Paul Rudd. She was in Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. And now, you know, she's in Only Murders in the Building, which I think is one of my favorite shows that's sort of being put on right now. And the documentary doesn't get into any of that. Any parts of her career that are acting-based, any parts of her career that she might even feel good about. And so I don't really know... To that point, it just seems fabricated in a sort of way, even though I really admire what it's trying to do. All right. I think um, Dana Nadira picks up on something really kind of kind of key to any of these types of projects. Like we've seen similar things about Taylor Swift, Beyonce, I don't know. But, um, you know, are we watching something that's just a careful extension of the existing brand with a kind of fakey peekaboo to it that actually is part of the highly controlled star image and commodification of this person? Or are we actually seeing something that looks genuinely beyond that into, into an actual human being? And we're, we're getting something like the candid essence of um, a person. And I'm just curious what you made of this documentary and where you kind of came out on that, that question of what we're seeing and, and maybe why we're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, Nadira, you said so many of the things that I was planning yeah, to say. <laughs> that now I'm, sorry. I'm digging down to the bottom of the barrel. But I mean, I have a similar, not allergy, but a resistance to these kind of self-produced pop star documentaries. There is, but they're not all the same. You know, this does not go as far down the road of being a complete puff piece in which you really cannot glimpse past that person's kind of PR scrim as, for example, the Beyonce documentary you mentioned exactly, or yeah. the Taylor Swift one. Yeah. 
this is maybe a little bit more like the Billie Eilish documentary, mm-hmm. which I can't remember if we discussed. Mm-hmm. The world's a little blurry. I think we did, yeah. Which, which I think is is quite good, but is also a self produced pop star documentary that's you know obscuring the edges of the picture a little bit using the vignette filter, you know, but <laughs> but using it pretty effectively. I think this plus the Billie Eilish documentary are examples of you know documentaries that give you a little bit more of a sense of the person's struggle behind the scenes, even if that is being you know presented and tailored in a certain way, you know, to enhance their their brand. Um, certainly, Selena Gomez comes across as, as an authentic person. You know, she herself comes off as an authentic person, but there's a, a huge part of her life that isn't represented, not just, as you say, Nadira, all the great acting she's done recently, which actually would have enhanced her brand if that's what the documentary is about, but things about her family. And this could be because the family didn't want to participate as much in the documentary. They do very briefly talk to her mother, but, you know, she grew up with a single mother who was a teenage mother. She talks very briefly about that. But that I would I would have liked to know so much more about her family background. There's a moment that her mother, who is very briefly interviewed on camera, talks about her daughter's breakdown in the moment that she found out that she was, you know, in a mental hospital because she read about it on TMZ, which is horrific. Um, but mm-hmm. why was she not in touch with her mother at that point? Later on, she says, you know, I love my mother. She's my everything. And they show her with her family. She seems to get along with them. But there's these vague references mm. to it seems like a period where she wasn't in contact with her family. So why? And when was that period? Um, you know, there's a brief sort of off-screen mention that she had alcohol or drug problems, or at least that there were headlines about that. Is that true? I don't know. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really talk about it. And I mean, just in very concrete terms, there's no timeline to this documentary, which drove me crazy because I literally couldn't tell how old she was and what year things were happening. That's a very in. good point. The yeah. fact is that this yeah. documentary was begun, and this is a fascinating story behind it, was begun in 2016. Um, as a kind of tour documentary. And unexpectedly, she had this breakdown on that tour and the tour ended. So the documentary went on hold for several years and then eventually in talks with the director, Alex Kashishian, Selena Gomez decided to go through with it and said, you know, let's show, you know, all the warts and all. I don't think they show every wart, but she decided to go ahead and turn it into a different kind of documentary. So that's all very interesting. But the documentary itself doesn't tell that story. So there's this moment when masks start to appear and you realize, oh, now we're in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I, I needed some signposting to kind of understand more concretely where we were and what was happening. In yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I mean, as someone who's inclined to hate people who love their life and love people who hate their life, I fell for this person over the course of the doc, right? Like I, it got, I don't think I was being suckered, right? I, oh I, yeah, she's incredibly yeah. winning, you know, and not because she's putting on a good face for the camera, but because she she really is vulnerable. Right. And I do and, really love her. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I loved her when my kids loved her, right? Which wasn't always true. My kids would, when they were really small, would admire some Disney stars or the like. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, well, you're going to outgrow that. And I always thought she was dif- distinct and genuinely special. And Nadira, you're absolutely right. Like how we are not, I mean, maybe it's a rights issue, who knows? But the, we're not seeing clips from some of her perform- recent acting performances seems like a minor crime it's like come on she's doing great work as an adult actress right now um and um what i do think the documentary depicts probably about as well as you could expect it to is we're talking about a person who's mastered the culture of let's just call it like non-personhood right like she's and she's discovering and it's kind of enough of it's on camera she's discovering at the age of 27 no, no, no. I'm I'm a person, right? Like, I, I, and and that personhood is somewhat inimical to Selena Inc. And by non-personhood, I'm not putting anyone down. It's just that she understands 
the nature of having given herself over to self-commodification, even though it paid off mega, that that comes at a cost that you are acutely aware of as you begin to live in the shadow of 30. And you're, by its nature, completely oblivious to when you're 7 or 14, maybe, or 21 or whenever it is. And it's more than just paparazzi. What I found interesting was the relationship with Raquel, the blonde friend, (laughs) who's like, is she a friend or a handler? I don't think that there is much of a distinction anymore for Selena, someone like Selena Gomez, which is heartbreaking. And that secondly, she's surrounded by enablers who are pretend friends whose job it is to keep the princess intact for another performance because she's Nadira, a lot of people's professional raison d'etre, right? Like she's a cash cow yeah. to them. And it's there is a kind of world of cynicism around her. But the documentary doesn't seem fully aware of that and in, in control of that, I wouldn't I say. Know. I think you Raquel, think? her friend, is one of the producers of it. I feel like the, this is when I talked about where are her, where is her family and what's her relationship to her family, the handlers are part of that. It sort of seems like her main social circle are these people who are more or less paid to prop her up and get her on stage to do her shows. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and yet she talks about having this deep connection with her family, but why isn't she calling her mom when she's breaking down? I mean, this isn't me blaming Selena no, for not no. calling her mom. I just want to understand what what the social fabric of her world is like. Yeah, and it seems like the narrative that the documentary, whether it intends to or not, is kind of pushing is that is that in order to be in Selena's orbit, given that she's grappling with this bipolar disorder and her lupus and all the really difficult things that she's dealing with, that everyone sort of kind of has to double as both, right? Handler and mom, handler and manager, handler and friend. And I'm just not sure mm-hmm. that that's true. Like I'm just yeah. not sure that that's something that I came away from the documentary feeling good about. In fact, it actually did make me still feel concerned about her. But one of the things that I do want to commend the documentary for are the moments that show her absolutely breaking down and being really curt and rude to the people who, whatever their intentions, are, you know, trying to do right by her, I guess. Um, And I think it does show a more human portrait of her than we are often afforded. But it left me with a lot of questions. Yeah. Mm, Okay. We have to wrap it, Nadira, as our resident Selenologist. Mm -hmm. Favorite Selena song? Oh, gosh. Don't choke here, Nadira. (laughs) I won't. I do think... Uh, of her more recent work um, she has a song I think it's called like Cut Me Off or something like that that's really great how could I confuse that shit for love so I gotta get you out my head now I just cut you off I mean, I think her 2020 album Rare as a whole is really fun. You know, she's an adult now. She's talking about how she wants a boyfriend, but boys suck, and how she's about to cut all of her relationships off, and that's great. I, as a Disney Channel kid, am a really, really big fan of all of her early albums with Selena Gomez and The Scene. Mm. And so any song from any of those, especially if it's a single from her first three albums, they will be childish. They will be kind of silly. But they are indeed bangers. And I think the world should know that. And I want you to know, baby. Ha <laughs> ha.
<laughs> All right. We have Pandora's box open now. We got to keep it. I know we have to go, but favorite acting performance in a feature film. Not so in other words, not Murders in the Building go. Ooh. Um give me one. I now. really enjoyed her in The Fundamentals of Caring with Paul Ooh. Rudd. I really really did. I think the movie itself is not perfect, but I just love the idea of her and Paul Rudd and Craig Roberts being in a car together and making jokes. All right, I got to stream that. I got to check that out. Uh, all right. Well, the new doc is Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. I think we're three thumbs up on both Selena, the person, Selena, the talent, and, uh, and the doc. So check it out. All right, moving on. All right. Well, uh, according to various accounts on the internet, he tweets. He tweets about One Direction, Harry Styles, Ariana Grande. Uh, he tweets about Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, Taylor Swift. He is also... The first Gen Z member of Congress, his name is Maxwell Alejandro Frost. And why don't we listen to a clip of him talking to CNN last week? When people ask me what does Gen Z care about, I think we all really care about the same issues. But Generation Z is seeing them through a different lens, right, through the life we've been through. I think about my timeline growing up seeing Occupy Wall Street, learning about Trayvon Martin, who was murdered just 30 minutes north of me, Parkland, March for Our Lives. These are the moments that are uh, defining for our generation. And I think I'm taking that perspective to Congress and the urgency that these issues really deserve. All right, Nadir, I'm going to guess that this maybe resonates with you. I will say... It has been an ongoing theme of the show, in a way, how the social contract has been broken for your generation. And it was only a matter of time, one would think, until that generation organized a, around a political consciousness of that um, ripoff job, effectively. Um, what do you make of his election and the fact that young people may really well have played difference maker in, um, in the congressional elections? To me, it's really, really fascinating and interesting. I think Frost says a lot of it in the clip there that's absolutely accurate. I mean, he refers to our generation as the mass shooting generation. And I think as dire and heartbreaking as it is, I think it's absolutely true. You know, he ran on a platform that showed solidarity for codifying Roe v. Wade, Medicare for all, demilitarizing the police, um, expunging all marijuana convictions, and again, gun control, as he mentioned, with March for Our Lives, in addition to so many other really, really core causes for younger generations and younger people now. And I think that the urgency that he's talking about is something that is probably the main tool that young voters and young people have now and the main thing that they hope to see in return, but is the one thing that I'm unsure we'll ever actually get. You know, mm-hmm. I think that we have a lot of energy um, and we feel urgent. You know, we're a generation that is becoming really, really more accustomed to protesting and all of the forms that that looks like and all of the methods that that takes. And so I think ur- urgency is the way we operate. And I really, really like the idea of an urgent sort of call for all of these things being injected into our system of politics now. But I, I, I wonder about the sort of legitimacy of it all and about the longevity of this really, really energetic cause and this uh, energetic way of rising to these problems. Mm, Dana, it, you know, we, we have daughters around the same age and it's just incredible to go through. Nadira started doing it, as did Frost in the clip. It's the litany of what public life has been for them. 
you couldn't blame young people if they had to, begun to tune out politics and and started to give up on on public life. Cynicism would be a natural response to it. Thank God they haven't, right? God, I mean, if they can keep up this level of energy for even, you know, <laughs> half a generation, yeah. it will yeah. be an incredible step forward for, for American politics. When I was reading a little bit about his background, Frost's background, I was just shocked at how quickly he has ascended to the point of being able to be elected to Congress. Like, do you guys remember after the Uvalde shooting earlier this year, there was this moment that Ron DeSantis was doing some kind of public event and he was heckled. He was, Mm -hmm. you know, shouted Mm -hmm. out by a protester who was dragged out. That was Maxwell Alejandro Frost. You know, I guess he had already at that point thought about starting to run for Congress. Maybe he'd started his campaign. But, you know, to most people, he was just a guy on the news who was shouting down Ron DeSantis in a press conference. And that kind of immediacy, you know, that that wasn't some formative (laughs) moment that years later led to him becoming a congressman. But a few months later, right, in the same year, he becomes a congressman. was just it was really exciting. It makes it gives a real sense of possibility. Also, I think looking a little into his background and seeing how close he had been to incidents of gun violence. Apparently, he survived a kind of violent shooting event in 2016. That was also the year of the Orlando nightclub shooting, right? So when he's from Orlando, Mm -hmm. that he would have been a teenager at the time. So it just... It, it made me think about those seeds being planted in the brains of millions and millions of now kids, you know, who are just about to to reach that that cusp age to be elected to Congress. Yeah, I mean, this this country so it does nobody needs me to say right, but but it is still worth reiterating that this country suffers from this grotesque asymmetry at the heart of its politics, which is that demographically we're increasingly diverse. The um, ideology if it's if you could even call it that of young people is so uh, pluralistic in some sense it's so open to ways of being in the world uh, and multiple kinds of identities and origins that when I was growing up were treated with either silence or contempt by mainstream culture and yet thanks to this asymmetry, our politics is dominated by old white voters because they vote in such preposterously huge numbers relative to their overall population. Their influence is so outsized. And we get a politics that reflects it. And as with so many things in American political life, it enters a vicious cycle. And of course, young people begin to tune it out. They think of it as non-responsive. The Republican Party is dying to send that message over and over again, create this general ambiance of unresponsiveness to the needs uh, or priorities of young people. And we're at this cusp moment, Nadira, where we have enough of a functioning electoral, democratic electoral system left that perhaps we can begin to reverse the vicious cycle. But it's right at that moment where what's on What's on the agenda now is literally democracy itself, right? It's like quite, I mean, they the Republican Party reads those demographic numbers and they understand their fate if they don't counteract them with the minoritarian politics, right? And, uh, and voter suppression, right? Tactics of suppression. And um, so, Nadir, this is a bleak picture. Do you think it's unfair of people of my age group to be placing so many hopes on the very people all along we've shafted? Gosh, uh, you know, that's a really hard question yeah. to answer because I, I 
I don't know anything else. I'm I'm 26, and this is you yeah. know the sort of only life I've lived. But I do. Why aren't think... you in Congress, Nadira? <laughs> Slacker. <laughs> that is a good question. You know what, Dana? I'm going to prepare my <laughs> my platform right now. Um, I think that I really identify with what Steve, what you were saying earlier, with democracy being on the line as a whole. You know, it's it's not just the sort of weight that's being put on my generation mm-hmm. and, you know, younger generations that will come and have come and are coming after me. It's also, it's just where we are now. You know, I think I read this one stat that was in a list of a whole bunch of stats that was saying that youth were the most likely to say that their views of President Biden played no role in their 2022 midterm vote. It's not mm. just the state of, you know, the GOP. It's sure. it's the state of American politics as a whole. And I think that what we are sort of energized by and what motivates us are the actual causes, right? And there are, as you mentioned, a lot of them that we have to grapple with. But I think it's just something that we do. It's something that like we know how to take in a lot of information and a lot of sensory stuff, partially because we grew up with the Internet and all these things. And so I think communication in that way is key. And having someone in Congress, you know, who can tweet, (laughs) who can use emojis properly, who can do all of these things that are really, really strong bat signals to us, I think is actually way more important than people might be giving it credit for. You know, it's that sort of community that we have that's unified by this, like, differing idea of what's right. And And I find that to be really interesting and really motivating, but also... I'm wondering, A, how long that will last, and B, what are we actually wrong about now that, mm-hmm. you know, we'll find out or won't find out for the next few decades. But I'm, I'm really, really proud of us for trying and for continuing to show up. I almost feel bad raining on this parade with anything negative. But one thing I would like to say about the whole conversation about, you know, the first Gen Z member of Congress being elected is that I really do think that these generational labels and over-investing in what they mean is <laughs> yeah. is destructive to the public conversation. And I kept reading other things that were exciting about Frost that had nothing to do with his age. He's the first Afro-Cuban member of of Congress. Sure. Just other yeah. categories that are, that are first that no one is talking about. And then reading facts like Madison Cawthorn, everybody's favorite, you know, representative of GOP youth in Congress was elected when he was 25. It just so happened that that was two years ago, so he's not officially Gen Z. And that made me just think about the artificiality of those distinctions. And, you know, even the idea, for example, that now that we have somebody who's 25, we have someone who can tweet in Congress. I mean, AOC opened up huge, you know, she obviously brought in sort of that language for the first time. And and being really good at social media in the way that she is, is something that I think, and I think she was in her late 20s, right, when she was elected to Congress. So it is great that this young man was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I suppose that you could micro divide and find something that's different yeah. about the presentational style of a 25 year old versus a 28 mm-hmm. year old. But right. in general, I find those divisions, unless you're talking about an actual sociological fact like the baby boom happening after World War II, to right. be to be annoying buzzwords. And I always have to say that that itself has become my annoying buzzword right. on the Gapfest. But that is how I feel about those distinctions. Right. For I, sure. Yeah. I, I do just want to say very, very quickly, like I I tend to agree and disagree. I kind of go back and forth on it, especially as someone who's in like, you know, on the cusp between millennial and Gen Z. I think sometimes too much energy is being put forward to it. I do think it actually shows some merit. There is a sort of 
quintessential way that we communicate with each other that's really hard to describe. But absolutely, my favorite tidbit about Maxwell Frost that I learned is that he's a gig worker. You know, he used yes. to be an Uber driver. He was I think driving that that's, an Uber. I love it. I think it. That that's fascinating yeah. and way more interesting to me than his age, you know? Yeah. I, I, no, 100% I'm with you on that. In the same way that AOC being a bartender, right? Right, I, exactly. I, right. Very inspiring. I mean, very quickly on social media, I mean, thank God, right? Because the one thing I think you have to give to Trump is that as grotesque as he is, he has this horrible, like, basically, he can lay his finger directly on the nerves of Id Force America with a tweet, um, which is horrific. But you need people who are deft at social media now. But Dana, we'll just have to pick that fight another day. I think generations are, they're real enough, right? Like, like they're, they're, they're somewhere in between uh, sociolo- empirical sociological fact and fairy tale, right? There's a historical narrative that can be woven that makes it important, narratively important to understand why an age cohort's experience was unique. And I agree that that narrative can be threadbare and scarcely credible and all about zeitgeist tussling. But I also think it can be made historically real in the sense that, you know, the Renaissance isn't real. They didn't think of it as the Renaissance. Periodization isn't real. There are heuristic conveniences that allow us, I think, to see more of the real in some sense. So anyway, that's my friggin' hobby horse. You got on yours, I got on mine, and now we're gonna ride <laughs> off into the sunset of this segment. You look like you don't you you look like you wanna joust. <laughs> I'm creating a spreadsheet of differences in my mind between the Renaissance and like the word zillennial, but okay, let's move on. <laughs> don't worry, I'll put this on my platform when oh my I God. eventually run for Congress. <laughs> I love that it doesn't take the presence of Julia Turner to Totally pinprick my trial balloon (laughs) and my sense of self on this show. Okay, anyway, moving on. Uh, We'll keep our close eye on the Zillennials. All right, well, now is the moment on our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, What did you bring us? Well, as long as we had a segment talking about a documentary about a celebrity made for TV that is arguably a puff piece but still worth watching, I will recommend another movie that falls into that exact same category, which is Spielberg, a 2017 documentary about Steven Spielberg that I happened to watch on HBO over the last few days because I was reviewing his new movie, The Fablemans, which is autobiographical or semi-autobiographical, and um, it has a lot of stuff about his childhood. So naturally, I went back to try to figure out what his actual childhood was like, and lo and behold, this uh, documentary about Spielberg is really good. I mean, it is true that it is, you know, it's it's not like an expose. <laughs> there may be bad things about Steven Spielberg that are not revealed by this documentary, but he genuinely seems to be quite a nice man. He's certainly very articulate and eloquent about mm. what it is to be a film director. And best of all, there's a lot of great talking heads that they bring in to talk about him. Everybody from Coppola to Kate Blanchett to mm. A.O. <laughs> Scott from The Times, just tons wow. of other directors and film scholars. And um, Tom Hanks comes and talks about what it's like to work with him. And it's a fairly standard chronological, you know, it tells you the story of the making of Jaws. It's got some great back, backstage footage of, you know, his movies being made on set. And some fascinating stuff about his childhood, which I won't spoil, because if you see The Fablemans, you'll be kind of amazed at his childhood story. But anyway, um, I know that some people have their problems with Spielberg as the the master manipulator that he is, but he is unquestionably one of the most important forces in American cinema. And if you want to learn a bit more about him, Spielberg is streaming on HBO Max. Yeah. um, Here, here. That's amazing. And by the way, I can't wait to talk about The Fablemans. I hope we do. Oh, Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nadira, what what do you have? 
I have two endorsements, if you will indulge me. I've been meaning or waiting to endorse on the show for a really long time. It's one of my favorite segments of the show. I just love learning what you guys are into. Um, So the first one is very, very quick. Like Dana, I was inspired by the Selena Gomez documentary to uh, sort of present something that is a piece of celebrity journalism. So the 15,000 word, very, very famous profile, Frank Sinatra has a cold by Gay Talese, I think oh, is sure. one of my absolute yeah. favorite pieces of journalism ever. It's something I read again and again and again. There's a really fun version of it on Neiman's storyboard with annotations, both by uh someone who's interviewing Gaitelis and then Gaitelis responding to those questions, I think is a really, really fun way to engage with the text. But it's, I mean, if you want to talk about sort of getting a good look at really famous but complicated public figures, I think that that is one of the prime examples that we have. So that's my first one. And then my second one is Moses Sumney's concert film, Black Alacha. So I don't know how familiar either of you are with Moses Sumney, but uh, he is a queer Ghanaian-American artist from California who makes, like, I would describe it as ethereal, avant-garde, art, jazz rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very, very good. Um, oh, yes. He, yeah, he's so good. He moved to Asheville, North Carolina in the summer of 2018 from California um, for nature and solitude to work on his second full-length project, which was a double album released in two parts in 2020 called Gray, which is all about the gray spaces in life and identity. But the lack of performing mid-pandemic pushed him to direct a sort of live conceptual concert film, which is just over an hour long on YouTube. It's filmed in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains and it's called Black Alacha, which is, you know, a portmanteau between Black and Appalachia, which he released almost a year ago in December of 2021. It's this really stirring, peaceful, like ruminative piece of art that rearranges 14 songs from his two previous and only albums, the aforementioned Grey and 2017's A Romanticism. Um, and I think he just deals with themes that are really, 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 really relatable, but in just an angelic way. Like his voice is astounding. And the rearrangements of this song, the arrangements of the song um, are so incredible like all of the songs he has this song called me in 20 years that just never ceases to reduce me to tears hold out for more time enough so that's moses sumney's black alacha concert film on youtube Uh, ah already bookmarked it while you were talking this is so doubly valuable because as i was sitting there thinking i'm going straight to spotify this is the first thing i'm going to listen to when i walk out of the studio and then i realized i was a huge fan of aromanticism five years ago and i don't know how i forgot about it but what a work of freaking genius and you're right Nadir, that's exactly what I remember about them is the bewitching, totally unexpected arrangements. Yeah. He's doing something musically that's you immediately love it, and yet it's totally unfamiliar. I mean, it's sort of esoteric, but not in the least bit alienating or, or like stupidly Absolutely. difficult. It's like, what a, I cannot wait to return to this. Thank you so much. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so, my, I have a kind of music related uh, endorsement as well. There, in the forthcoming Times Magazine, but it's already up on the web, there's an interview with Brian Eno. And the thing about Eno is, like, talk about 
one of the few people who really deserves the elder statesman label, but he's not a statue. He's not like a dead thing for pigeons to shit on. He's like, he's just stayed so vital and he's such a genuine intellectual. He's so deeply engaged with questions of like mind and spirit and politics and existence in ways that are totally unpretentious, but quite... I don't know. Sophisticated is too condescending. I mean, he's just an extraordinarily intelligent man who's continued to use his moral and creative intelligence throughout his entire life. And the interview reflects that. And I just want to read this one thing that really struck me. He's asked about, like, you know, he's worked with as a producer, you know, Brian Ferry, Roxy Music. He was in Roxy Music, of course, but also producing. David Bowie uh, produced Low, I think. Uh, and I'm forgetting the other one, but uh, one of the great Berlin albums. Uh, U2, he really was instrumental in U2 becoming um, the band we know. Uh, David Byrne. And so he's sort of, because he himself, you know, is not a rock star precisely. I mean, he, you know, he's been sort of rock star adjacent his whole life um, and uh, professional life. And so he's asked, well, what's charisma? What do these guys have? And he says, that's an interesting question. I, I, he says, I think charisma comes out of the sense you have that not only is someone different, but they're also confident and committed to it, obsessed even by it. We don't find uncertainty charismatic. It doesn't work for anybody very well. And in, in general, the media, they don't appreciate people like that. I would like to cultivate a charisma of uncertainty. Um, and, he, and then he goes on to say, yeah, yeah, a charisma of uncertainty would be my thing. In a way, David Byrne has that. And um, I love that. I just love that idea, this oxymoron, right, in a way. But yet, yet it has a truth that rings, rings with a kind of truth to it. And, um, you know, even in the Selena Gomez documentary, right, you would think defined by charisma, by the, she was a star. Your eye gravitated to her. She knew who she was in some sense. And she's started to bleed into this adult human being who has the charisma of uncertainty in that film quite often. Can I add a tiny Brian Eno commentary? Please, Just always. that I so happened, I never sort of sit down and listen to him, though I agree with you that he, I think of him more as almost an artist inspirer. You know, I love his, yeah, um, for sure. his music his, is wonderful, though. Like great. Another Green it's, World is a great rock well, let album. Let me finish. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that while writing the other day, I was in the mood for some kind of floaty, ambient music that That's is not the, the kind of thing I yeah. usually listen to. I'm usually much more of a kind of like, you know, Baroque harp background kind of person or whatever. <laughs> um, but I thought, hey, Brian Eno does that kind of stuff right he has that famous quote about i want to make music so you don't hear the clinking of silverware awkwardly while you're eating yeah and i put on just randomly found on youtube thursday afternoon which is a whole kind of ambient long piece that he has i don't know what you would call it but i think it was written as a soundtrack initially a soundtrack for some kind of art installation or something anyway Mm. i I chose it because it sounded nice thursday afternoon with brian eno and sure enough it was just this great it did exactly the 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 fork clinking (laughs) thing that that brian eno has (laughs) talked about it made me stop hearing the noise in my own head and just be able to enter into a freer space to write in. Yeah, absolutely. The ambient stuff is just amazing. Anyway, the interview's in the November 13th uh, magazine, but it's online now. It's a sort of long-form interview with Eno called Brian Eno Reveals the Hidden Purpose of All Art. Check it out. All right, uh, Nadira, thank you so much. This was a terrific show in no small part because of your contributions. And let's do it again soon. Please, please, please. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Diana, always really fun. It was a joy. Show. Yeah, that was really nice. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. And our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. For uh, Nadira Goffman, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. 